Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Today is the final in my Writers on Resilience series. Marianne Monson has written 11 books for children and adults with an emphasis on frontier-era women's history. I discovered her through a nonfiction title, Frontier Grit, in which she shares 12 true stories of incredible and diverse pioneer women from all backgrounds who changed the world of the American frontier. It's an intersectional collection of women who are tough, hardy, fearless, and groundbreaking. She followed that up with a companion nonfiction book, Women of the Blue and Gray, Civil War Mothers, Medics, Soldiers, and Spies, and Her Quiet Revolution, a novel about Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, frontier doctor and first female state senator. I posted photos and further details about Marianne on my website, including links to purchase her books. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, let's meet Marianne Monson. Hello, Marianne. Thank you so much for coming onto my podcast today. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, you are my last of four writers on resilience. And it's just been such a wonderful journey interviewing people about how they write their resilient characters. Can't wait to listen to the other. Yeah, I was really attracted to yours when I read Frontier Grit, which I read a couple of years ago. And then Mm -hmm. recently, I read your book about Civil War women as well. So I'm looking forward to asking you some questions Uh about those books in particular. So let's start with your life beginnings. What was your childhood like? I moved around a lot. My dad wasn't in the army, but I had kind of a similar childhood. You know, I was born in Boston, and then we moved to California. Utah for a while, then back to Connecticut. So coast to coast all over the place, finally landed in Chicago. But I think having such a transient childhood really pushed me into books. And that was the constancy, books and and writing. I was fairly avid journalist, but I think used books and relied on books as a way to process my experience and as a way to find connection that was often a challenge to find in real life. Yeah, that must have been hard. Did you feel like you were constantly having to start over and making friends and things like that? Yeah, it was really hard. It's really hard to be the new kid. And I still have a huge soft spot in my heart for children that have to Mm. move. It's just, you know, a constant social readjustment and trying to navigate that. And, and it seemed like every time I made a close friend, we would have to move, you know, Uh like seriously, like right afterwards. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, So it was really hard. There's a reason why my children went to the same school from kindergarten till graduation. You know, I didn't want them to have to go through that. 
Definitely. And I I guess I don't really think of this, but I guess I have a privilege I don't usually think about because I was able to stay in the same school system throughout my childhood. So that's kind of lucky, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially between states. So how did you become a writer? I mean, it's really connected to that story. Like I said, I think books, they helped me navigate the world. They helped me have a sense of constancy through all of that chaos and change. I was an avid journal writer, but always writing stories and poems as well. I was happiest when I was wandering around the forest with a book (laughs) from a very young age. (laughs) So really was lucky enough to have a family that had really wonderful library. I don't know. I was kind of like a odd kid where I would go find, I always loved old, old books. I would find like the oldest book of like Tennyson poetry and go read it aloud to myself in the forest. <laughs> Things oh like that. <laughs> really born in the wrong century. Yes, right. <laughs> so you were really interested in history then. You must have been as a child. Yeah, I didn't connect it with the subject of history, but I absolutely was always interested in my room, like as a kid looked like an antique store. I went through this phase where I would wash my face in like a basin with a pitcher. (laughs) You know, one of those washing pitchers. I know. I was very dramatic. Did you travel to historical spots with your Mm -hmm. family? And were you interested in that kind of thing? Whenever I could, you know, I think the biggest thing is that both of my grandmothers had historic houses. My father's mother house was built by Mormon pioneers in Farmington, Utah, and it started off as a one-room house, you know, and then was added on to over years of time. I loved growing up in her attic and just like sorting through whatever random stuff was up there and digging for treasures and things like that and playing dress ups a lot. So yeah, I did love history. Like I think like many kids, I didn't connect it very much. It took me a long time to connect it to the subject matter of history. Uh Yeah. I think I was the same. I don't think I, I, I didn't really take a lot of history classes necessarily, but I remember liking Mm -hmm. those types of Mm -hmm. older books. And yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. Well, that makes a lot of sense to what kind of books you ended up writing. So you mentioned that you went through a divorce with small children, and I know you have a Mormon background. How did that work out with your faith? It was definitely a challenge. You know, I think going through a divorce can be really humbling, sort of cause you to reevaluate everything. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of it is just survival too, you know, those years, especially I was trying to get my writing career off the ground at the same time. And there were just never enough hours, but writing all throughout my life has just been my greatest refuge. I would wake up early, early before my kids got up. I would stay up late at night after they were finally asleep. I would write during their naps, any moment of time that I could snatch was when I wrote. And how long were you a single parent for? 10 years, actually. That must have been challenging as you were making your writing career. Did you support your family through your writing then? Eventually, but it took a long time. I've heard people say that it it takes on average about 10 years for someone to publish and uh-huh. you know a 10 years of serious writing to publish and that was I was right on that about on that uh-huh. 10 year mark so I'd always wanted to be a writer 
That was my goal ever since I was little. And then after college, I landed an internship at Beyond Words Publishing in Portland. So that was kind of my entry into the publishing world. And then worked my way up to be a managing editor of the children's division. So I did that before my kids were born. And it was a great way to kind of learn the business side of writing. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, but then once I became a single mom, I transitioned to teaching at Portland Community College. And I actually found it was easier for me to write and teach versus write and have an editing career just because the hours just were much more flexible. And also when I was editing other people's work all day long, I found I had very little energy for my own work. So that was really when I started writing seriously. Uh, let's start with your first set of books written for younger yeah. readers. Was The Water is Wide? Was that the first one? The Water is Wide is the first book that I wrote. I wrote it as my master's thesis at Vermont College during my MFA program. But my first books that were actually published was a series of four children's chapter books. So I wrote The Water is Wide first, but then those four books came out first. What were they about? They're based on my two children. It's about Nathan and Aria. Those are my kids' names. And, and it was a game we used to play where... There was like the church building that we attended. There was a place where they would store the chairs. It was like this long cupboard. And my kids would go in there and we would pretend that it was a tunnel that would take them to different times. History. Yeah. So I turned it into a little book series and it got picked up. And the great thing about that series is that it introduced me to my editor and she basically said, so what else do you have? And I said, well, I have this novel that I worked on in grad school, but it, it needs some work. You know, I think like a lot of people who write a novel in an MFA program, they find that it ends up having challenging aspects that you <laughs> are so sick of that you can't really figure out how to resolve and you just, you know, need to be done with it at the end of the program. But anyway, I sent it to her and, and to my surprise, she really loved it. She said, I love it and I want to do it. And so it was great to go back to it and revise it with her input. And then that came out as The Water is White. And it was my first historical fiction novel. And I understand it's based on your own ancestry. Yeah, it is. So I did a study abroad during college to England. And as part of that, we got to stay like with a local family, like live in for a couple weeks. And so I went up to Yorkshire and this family actually lived very close to this town that some of my ancestors had come from. And my grandmother, who had done a lot of family history work, sent me the names of these family members and the areas that they had come from. And I told this family I was staying with, and they took me to go visit the little tiny village, Almondbury in Yorkshire. It's a tiny little town. And this is where my ancestors had come from. And I walked through the graveyard and I looked through the parish records and got to see basically how this family, they had listened to Mormon missionaries from America, but it was remarkable to me to go back in time, back through the generations of all the family members who had been born and were christened and married and then died and were buried in this small little parish churchyard. And it just was so remarkable to me to think of these generations 
generations upon generations stretching back through time. And then this sudden breach, the arrival of these missionaries from across the sea, and then this decision to uproot everything. I think part of what attracted to me to it was because it was so different from my own experience. You know, I told you about moving around so much. So I had never known what it was like to have that kind of a connection to a place. To imagine having that long, long connection to one place and then to imagine leaving it for a religion and traveling across the ocean, knowing you would never see those people again. really captured my imagination and I wanted to explore it. That is really hard to imagine right now that you would leave your family and never see them again, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's really exciting that you were able to explore that more. And so, so was Frontier Grit your first book written for adults? Well, The Water is White, actually, I wrote it as a young adult novel, but it ended up getting pulled over to adults and ah. pulled better there. It just shows you how arbitrary those categories yes. are. So after that book, my editor came to me and she said, I want to do a book about female pioneers. Do you want to write it? And she wanted oh. nonfiction. And I said, well, I don't really write nonfiction, but I (laughs) would. Wow. And she said she wanted it to have a strong narrative. She wanted it to be accessible and really engaging nonfiction. And so that was how I started working on Frontier Grit. And I really was looking for stories of remarkable women who didn't have a lot of name recognition, but who had done incredible things, who had participated in some sort of overlap and journey, so some sort of physical pioneering as well as pioneering on another level. So that was what I was looking for. And then I was just blown away by the stories that I found. Yeah, I love the fact that you told stories of women of color and all sorts of walks of life. So I remember, you know, certain books that you remember where you were when you read something. (laughs) I remember that I was traveling for work and I was in uh, Marin County at the end of 2018 when I was reading your book. For some reason, I remember like the the hotel bathroom. Yeah, it really stuck with me. And and I was surprised because it was so intersectional. Because when you think of frontier stories, you don't usually hear about black or yeah. Latino or native stories. Yeah. Yeah. So so it was really groundbreaking. I just picked out a few stories because I was revisiting the book to prepare for this interview and I pulled out a couple of names that I really stuck with me. So can you tell us the story, for example, of Aunt Clara Brown? Yes, I would love to. But if you don't mind, I want to just mention in response to what you just said that I think that it's so important that we kind of fight back against those narratives, the way that the frontier in America has been conceptualized as a primarily white space is really factually incorrect. That is how it's been presented in books and movies and literature for many, for many, many years. And it kind of plays into that whole manifest destiny, that sort of thing. And, and when I was thinking about this book, that it was exactly what I wanted to cut against because it's not an accurate representation. Like the American frontier was incredibly diverse, you know, and and was really this like tumultuous meeting of all these different cultures from all over the world. And, And you had native peoples and you had, you know, many people coming from Mexico. So they were coming north and they were traveling all these different directions. And I wanted to really capture that and expand 
the definition of what we mean by frontier to sort of frontier and, and the word pioneer to really reclaim that word away from its roots in westward expansionism and to look at what pioneering means on a much larger level. So Yes, I love that. So Anne Claire Brown, definitely one of my favorite stories in the book. She's just such a remarkable woman and frankly, I need to write a screenplay based on her life. Oh, that would be great. I think it would be an incredible movie. She was basically born into slavery on the East Coast. And like so many enslaved people watched her family be sold at auction, her children sold off to many different owners. And of course, because of the lack of literacy, the lack of names. So the way that enslaved people were deprived of their rights to a last name, basically were forced to assume last names of the people they were sold to. So this was all a way to break down families and make it impossible for families to keep track of each other. And then, of course, the way that they were deprived of literacy as well just compounded that. So her family was sold off in all of these different directions. She was able to gain her own freedom and come west. And she settled in Colorado where she built a laundry business working with miners up in the mountains. She was a really skilled investor. And so she often, instead of payments for her services would take mine stakes and stakes and mining claims. So she became one of the wealthiest women in the West. And she used that money to basically fund the movement of formerly enslaved people out of the South as part of the Great Migration Northward and some of the refugee camps that were established in Kansas. And during all of this work that she did, this great humanitarian work, she was looking for her lost family members and eventually reunites with her daughter near the end of her life. But it's an absolutely remarkable story. When I was revisiting the book, I was listening to it and reading it, you know, it was like... Mm -hmm. And just the idea of searching for her daughter until, wasn't it like four years before she died that she discovered Uh her? I mean, that faith and that hope that she had throughout her life was amazing. Yeah, Yeah, I know she never gave up hope. And many of her friends basically said, you need to let this go. They were afraid she was going to be disappointed when they found someone who had the same name as her daughter. But anyway, she traveled east to meet her and it was her daughter. It's amazing. And how many years after slavery had ended did that happen that she was finally able to meet her daughter? Do you remember? Well, so it was 40 years and right near the end of her life. The Civil War happened when she was already in Colorado. She died in 1885 in Uh Colorado. So I think the reunion happened right around 18 and you look back on these stories of these families that were just completely dissembled and you know mm-hmm. sent in all different directions. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, it does. And I think it gives so much understanding and relevance to like the issues that we're still dealing with today. You yeah. know, it's really a mistake to believe that slavery in America ended 150 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I was also really glad to see Abigail Scott Dunaway in your book, because on Election Day 2016, I organized a group of women wearing pantsuits to visit Dunaway's gravesite. We were actually in the Oregonia, and we had an Oregonian reporter come out and interview us. And we were, of course, so hopeful. And I was just delighted to discover that her gravesite is like two miles from my house. Is so, it really? Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. I haven't visited her grave. And when I heard that you had done that, I was so jealous. I yes. I want to do that with you next time you do that. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Yes. If you come next time you come to put come into Portland, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to show you where it is. And I okay. haven't gone back to visit it. I should. It's the cemetery that's right near mm-hmm. the Selwood Bridge. Mm, okay. If you go yeah. down that road down to John's Landing area. And so it's very easy to find. But yeah. we had we had probably 20, 25 women and some children that were there that day to uh yeah, to pay tribute. So anyway, I love her story. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about Abigail, one of Oregon's heroes? Yeah. So Abigail, she traveled West as a child. Well, she was a teenager, actually, when her family came West. Her father was really adamant about taking the overland journey. Her mother was opposed to it. Her mother died during the journey. And Abigail was given the job of recording the whole thing. So basically being the the journal keeper for the trip. She also ended up needing to write the letters to inform her family that her mother, you know, the family they'd left behind that her mother had passed away. So incredibly, you know, heart-wrenching experience, very young. But they settled in Oregon. By the time they got here, they were completely penniless. Their shoes had all fallen apart. But she married and there was a lot of competition between her and her brother, Harvey Scott. Abigail really resented the fact that her brother was allowed to receive an education that she longed for, Mm. but was denied. And Harvey Scott went on to become one of the prominent editors at the Oregonian and was staunchly opposed to women's suffrage. And Abigail became convinced over a series of events that happened to her that nothing was going to change for women until the laws changed for women. And so she became really dedicated to the idea of expanding suffrage to women and how important that was, along with a lot of other, you know, the rights to own property, the rights to have an income and separate from their husband. So she was fighting for a lot of those kinds of laws too. So her brother at the Oregonian was staunchly opposed to women's suffrage. And she, of course, was a passionate supporter of it. And so I like to just imagine the family dinner with those two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were pretty legendary. There's several accounts of some, you know, challenging conversations over family dinners. She really, to challenge Harvey's position, she started the New Northwest, which was a feminist newspaper. And its main goal was the expansion of women's suffrage. And for 40 years, she fought for women to have the right to vote in Oregon. And Oregon voted more on the issue of women's suffrage than any other state in the union. A lot of the people that opposed it, along with Harvey Scott, were related to the liquor industry. And 
the thinking being that if women received the vote, that they would support the passage of prohibition. And so there was a lot of very strong opposition to Abigail's work. She went on a speaking lecture with Susan B. Anthony, and the women were just harassed in so many different ways, had things thrown at them, had eggs thrown at them, hit them in the head, eliciting a lot of really intense anger and threats of violence and and actual, you know, violence that was perpetrated against them. So, but anyway, they didn't give up, of course, and continued to work for the passage of the vote. And of course, Abigail Scott Dunaway became the first woman to vote in Multnomah County. So they gave her that honor. They also gave her the honor of writing up when it finally did pass that she wrote up the actual law. So Uh, I think that I read... Back in 2016, I read that she was instrumental in getting women the right to vote in Washington as well as Oregon. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And and Washington passed it a little bit before we did. Right. So that tour was really, you know, with uh, Susan B. Anthony was all over the West Coast. So mm. I found a quote by Abigail Scott Dunaway. When women's true history shall have been written, her part in the upbuilding of this nation will astound the world. What does this quote mean to you in your writing? You know, I think like so many people, the history classes that I took in high school and college had so little women present in them. If you judged it by by that history that we learned, it was it was really all about dates and wars and presidents and and I think I received the impression that women were really just always in the background, you know, and they were mainly raising children. And as more and more attention has been focused on women's history in the past few years, I just think the stories that have come to light really contradict that presentation of history that we grew up with. That history is really the stories of individuals. That's all that that's all it really is. And there were a lot of remarkable individuals that were working in incredible ways, both directly and indirectly. Those stories have been forgotten, or at least they weren't presented in, in any way that gave them the kind of emphasis that they really deserve. And so I think it's wonderful to the point of that quote. It's It's been really remarkable to see the work that's been done to really reclaim those histories and those stories. Yes. And your books really help with that. So how did you find these stories? I mean, where did you research? To, I mean, some of them are pretty obscure. You know, I had a long list and sort of winnowed it down from there. I wanted to include like a wide variety of women. It was really important to me to include include, for instance, a Mexican-American woman and Native American woman, you know, so a lot of women from many different backgrounds, but... The research process just really depended on how much was published about them and how and what the primary source material was. Mm-hmm. Women like Mother Jones and Abigail Scott Dunaway have had, like, they, they've left a really significant trail of primary documents. I mean, Abigail was like just a <laughs> incredibly prolific writer. Yes, yes. So. She was probably easy compared to the others. 
Yes. But uh-huh. then, well, Zikalasa was also a, a writer. So there was a lot. So the women who were writers <laughs> like, had a little bit more to go off of. But Luzetta Stanley Wilson left less. And, and by far the most challenging was Macau Pio Pio, the native Hawaiian woman, because so little had been written about her. And so, yeah. So, and, and in fact, my editor at one point suggested that I should probably cut her from the book, but I felt like it was so important to keep her because she's just a reminder of like all of the women who due to a lack of literacy or in her case, you know, primarily oral language with native Hawaiian, like that their stories just, we don't have the same physical record. I wanted their presence in the book still, you know, to kind of represent the loss and, and her story, I think does that. Yes, definitely. So can you tell us about Donald Dina Cameron who rescued Chinese girls from sex trafficking rings in San Francisco? Yeah. So Donald Dina, was an immigrant from New Zealand and came to the U.S. at quite a young age. And then she ended up in San Francisco's Chinatown. There was a a mission home there. And she went there to teach sewing lessons, but then really fell in love with the girls. And she ended up spending 40 years of her life basically fighting sex trafficking rings in Chinatown in San Francisco. And so there's a novel that just came out about her, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's called Paper Daughters. Anyway, her story is like one of those ones. It's like Aunt Claire Brown, where it just reads like fiction, you know, because it's Mm. so intense and exciting. I mean, she she was fighting these really powerful tongs, groups of organized crime that would traffic these Chinese women and girls and children. And so she was kind of like a lot of reports to say that she had almost this like uncanny ability to find where these girls were being hidden. They were hidden in trap doors and in attics and down in cellars and and she would find them. She was a deeply spiritual person and so she she felt like it was God who was leading her. She was nicknamed the white devil actually by wow. <laughs> by the people who were opposing her work. Really pioneering a lot of the laws that protected against sex traffic. So her work has had really long-term impacts as well. One of the people you featured in Frontier Grit is Martha Hughes Cannon mm-hmm. and you recently expounded on her life in your most recent novel, Her Quiet Revolution. Can you tell us about her life? Yeah, Martha Hughes Cannon, she was born in Wales. And so she was a Welsh immigrant. She came as quite a young child with her parents to New York. And then they went with a Mormon pioneer company to Utah. And so she was in the frontier in Utah at a time when many Mormon women were dying in childbirth. And so Brigham Young actually called for women to be trained in the East as doctors. So he sent a lot of women East to receive this training. And many of the women who did it chose to go to colleges and universities that were like female medical schools. But Martha chose to go to the University of Michigan just a few years after they first started accepting women. So was just one of a very small number of women to go through what was one of the top medical programs in the country. And so she graduated and became a frontier doctor and went back to Utah to practice, to establish her medical practice. And then she 
entered into a polygamous marriage and had a baby. So she had to go into the Mormon underground. So she was in hiding for some time and then fled overseas. She went back to Wales and she went to England where her mother was from. So that's basically what the story is about. But she went on to become the first female state senator and fight for women's suffrage as well. Utah was an early adopter of women's suffrage. And so she actually spoke before Congress and she spoke at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago about how suffrage had worked for women in Utah and how it should be adopted on a wider scale across the United States. That's really amazing because I think that the Mormon church has a reputation for not having equality for women, yet Mm -hmm. the fact that Utah was one of the first states to adopt women's suffrage, that's very surprising to me. Yeah, I think it's surprising for a lot of people to learn how much feminism was a huge part of the early beginnings of Mormonism. They had a very strong presence. Actually, Susan B. Anthony went to Utah as well, became really good friends with Emmeline B. Wells, a really prominent Mormon feminist who ran a newspaper that was a lot like Abigail Scott Dunaway's. It was called The Women's Exponent. And those two newspapers were really kind of like the premier feminist newspapers in the country. Wow. Were there more traditional Mormons that were fighting against this progress? You know, at that point, the Mormon church leadership was quite behind it. And part of it is related to polygamy. Basically, what happened is that a lot of the people who were fighting slavery, when they were finished you know, abolishing slavery after the Civil War, they kind of turned their attention to polygamy in Utah. And in fact, the Republican Party platform promised to abolish the twin relics of barbarism. And by that, they meant slavery and polygamy. So because of those critiques, basically the leaders of the Mormon church wanted to fight against that perception. And so they had some of the most relaxed divorce laws in the country. And they also really supported the women being fully involved in the feminist movement at that point. So Uh things of course changed later after they moved away from polygamy and in the 50s and the 70s definitely got on the other side of that argument. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. One of my upcoming podcast episodes, I interviewed a former Mormon woman who got married very young and had four kids and then realized that she was a lesbian. Uh You know, how difficult that was for her because she lost her entire community when she left the church. And so the church has changed a lot since then. So prioritizing motherhood and wife and everything. So let's move on to uh, Women of the Blue and Gray, Civil War Mothers, Medics, Soldiers, and Spies. And I really enjoyed this book as well. Again, you did an excellent job of sharing diverse stories, not just Black, White, Native women, but also I thought it was interesting in your introduction, you talk about sharing stories of both North and South. You know, growing up in the North, I think of people I I still probably view the South with a prejudice of my own, you know? Uh Yeah. And then I've always been, always been attracted to stories of women who masqueraded as men to do male activities. (laughs) Like, I I think I saw a quote in your book from the song, The Cruel War. Uh I love that folk song because, you know, the woman is thinking about dressing up as a man to go into war. So, Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book and some of your favorite stories? Yeah. 
So after Printer Grit came out, my editor asked me what was next. And I've always been fascinated by the Civil War and some of the historical fiction of, of the Civil War. And so I just said, what if we what if we did a book about the women of the Civil War? Because there's just been less written about them, women in some of the other conflicts. So it was really wonderful to be able to work on this book. And yeah, one thing that I hadn't realized going into it is that hundreds of women, I mean, we'll never know the exact number, right? Because many of them remained successfully hidden under male identities and fought in the war. But hundreds of women did fight. We know fought in the in the Civil War on both sides for both North and South and in every major battle of the war too. So we know women were part of Sheridan's cavalry scouts. We know women fell at the Battle of Gettysburg. And so I think certainly that is not a story that you hear very much no. in the presentations <laughs> of the Civil War. Right. Yeah, exactly. I really especially enjoy the spy stories. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you give us a few examples of women's during the Civil War? You know, one that often gets overlooked is Harriet Tubman because her role in the Underground Railroad, I think, gets a lot of attention, you know, under, very deservedly. But after the Underground Railroad, the United States recruited her as a spy and she really designed and helped lead the Combahee River Raid, which was just an incredibly remarkable and intricate event but essentially she did a lot of espionage work to go undercover into these areas in order to scout the sites and to learn the location of the placements of the torpedoes in the water. And she did that by going undercover and visiting the slave cabins and talking to the enslaved people who had put the torpedoes in the water, you know? So, I mean, here she is a, an escaped slave, right? And she's returned, you know, dozens of times to rescue family and friends. But at this point, she has a huge bounty on her head. She is like one of the Confederates most you know, wanted people. <laughs> and so to go down into the South, back to this area, it was it's just taking an incredible risk. But she did it and helped to design this river raid that essentially was able to destroy a lot of military targets. So I uh, took out bridges and supply houses, storehouses, things like that but then successfully rescued 700 enslaved people and brought them north. 200 of them would turn around and enlist in the colored troops to fight for the north. It's just an incredibly remarkable moment in U.S. military history that I think often gets forgotten about or overlooked. Yeah, that story how she was on the boat and all all of these slaves were trying to get onto the boat. Yeah. yeah. And did you see the movie Harriet, the biopic Harriet? I did, yeah. I yeah, did. I, love, I love that movie, but her whole period as a spy was just an afterthought in the credits. Yeah. <laughs> Too, that should, but I feel like there yeah. could be more done with her. Yeah, story. I mean, that should be a whole movie in, a, in and of itself, really. Right, you absolutely. Know? Yeah, so some of these women have fascinating names and personalities like Mother Bickerdyke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There were a number of really interesting names. Yeah, like Malvarina, Alvarina Peppercorn. That's yes. my personal favorite. I know. Oh my gosh. I think you need to create some sort of, uh, you know how they have those uh, memes where you can choose like what letter of your name goes to win. <laughs> 
We should create one of those. Yeah, that would be fun. Her brother is Alexander the Great Peppercorn. So <laughs> her parents obviously had like a Yes. Oh my gosh, Peppercorn. <laughs> Dr. Mary Walker stood out for me in this book. And not only because she was a surgeon, but also because she wore pants. Yeah. So can, yeah. You tell us, can you tell us her story? Yeah, her story is she is somebody who I had never heard of and then just devoured a whole biography on her. And she's one of my heroes. I really, really love Mary Walker. If there's someone that I could meet, she would be way near the top of the list. She was a surgeon during the Civil War, fought a lot to receive the recognition she deserved for her skills and intelligence. You know, she was paid at the level of a nurse during part of her career because you just couldn't have females commissioned as surgeons for the U.S. Army. But she was able, after a lot of persistence, to receive a a surgeon post. But she was captured as a prisoner of war, so spent some time in a Confederate prison, and she ended up having health challenges as a result of that incarceration. Stayed with her the rest of her life. She was also a pioneer for dress reform and took a lot of antagonism. And, you know, she she had a lot of harrowing, especially she was arrested several times actually for what they called dressing as a man and um, had things thrown at her in the streets it's interesting those dress reform pioneers they elicited a lot of anger and hatred that I think is is really challenging for modern readers to fathom you know yes (laughs) choice in dress could elicit such a response she always stayed true to her ideals and did a lot of writing about how important it was for women to be able to be healthy, to not have to wear corsets and how bad that was for women's health. She fought for women's reproductive health too and advanced ideas about how rape should be handled. And so she was really like an advocate for women in, in every way and was not treated well by her contemporaries. Like she put up with a lot of societal alienation because of her views, her views that have been completely vindicated by right, later right. generations. You know? right. so. Was she the one who fought throughout her life to get compensated for her work during the war? Yeah, she yeah. did fight to get compensated and that was true of many women many women who had fought during the war you know really struggled with recognition and compensation even to receive a pension at the rates of nurses you know I mean it seemed like it was harder for her because she was a surgeon instead of a nurse right because it wasn't recognized right they didn't know what to do with it you know it's like no category to put her into oh my gosh and then you also talk about how the civil war was a particularly difficult time to be Native American. Can you explain a little bit about that? I think that the Civil War really exacerbated a lot of the tensions that were already going on. And and basically, it's overlooked the way that in exchange for their land in these treaties, the U.S. government promised to protect and provide for these Native peoples. And that really, when the crisis of the Civil War came about, it put the government into a state of crisis where it wasn't able to function. And one of the things that fell off was they certainly were not fulfilling their promises that they had made to the Native peoples that way. And so it became a a really challenging time for many of of the Native peoples. Although some of them fought for the war, joined the side, entered the war on one side or the other. And so many of the, the nations made really significant sacrifices 
to help participate in the war effort, but didn't really receive the promised rewards for doing so. So has anything surprised you in doing all your research about women's roles in history? One thing that's really surprised me was real, and and I think this really goes to your own work, Marie. As I was, you know, I didn't pick Frontier Grit, like the women in Frontier Grit, with any particular overarching goal other than to really reclaim some stories that I felt like would be remarkable and that people hadn't heard before. But as I started, you know, identifying the women I wanted to include and putting them side by side, I was really struck by how many women were led to their lives work through the process of losing almost everything. You know, there's these like intense moments of crisis that they went through and they faced with tenacity really in some way led them to what ended up becoming their overall life's work. It seems like that really connects with the work that you do on your podcast as well. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think you probably saw some themes emerging. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find that with my podcast as well, that I often will interview somebody who has a connection to somebody else or who has a similar path. Or It's very interesting when you start giving a voice for people who haven't had a voice before. So So you have signed a contract for two more novels set Mm -hmm. in World War II. Can you give us a sneak peek into what you're writing about? Yeah, I'd love to. The book that I'm working on right now is about Ida and Louise Cook, and they're two British sisters who were opera fanatics. And they ended up working with Clemens Krauss, who was a conductor. He was a conductor for the Germans. And they ended up helping Jews escape from Nazi Germany prior to the outbreak of World War II. And so they used opera as a cover to travel back and forth between London and Germany and Austria and help people escape. Wow. And so were these real life people? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Ah, Wow. That sounds great. Yeah. It's been really exciting to work on their stories. And the EU actually gave me permission to travel to do the research in September, which I felt incredibly grateful for because, you know, it was in the middle of COVID pandemic. So it was a little moment of reprieve when the numbers weren't quite so high. And and because it was work research project, they gave me permission to do it. Oh my gosh. So where did you go on your research trip? I went to Germany and I visited Dachau and Munich and then over to Austria where they helped people escape after the Anschluss. And then I went up to Scotland, to Edinburgh, to their childhood home is just south of Edinburgh. And then down to London, where I got to go see their home and do some research on location there. That must have been really odd to travel during COVID and do all these things during COVID. Very odd. And it was kind of remarkable to be in Europe and have no other American tourists there. Yes, I bet. Oh my gosh. Wow. Very unusual. Fascinating. I mean, right now the thought of traveling is just so, I mean, I love to travel and I really miss it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so hard to, and my my family, as I mentioned, my husband's British. So uh, it's hard to think about when we'll be able to go back there again. I know. I know. Yeah. It felt like a really unexpected gift. Three weeks before I was assuming it was going to be canceled. And then I was so surprised. I had to scramble because I had just assumed it was going to be canceled. So, <laughs> so yeah, wow. I was grateful that they let me in and I tried to be very, very careful and had a lot of tests along the way to make sure I wasn't passing things. So, so when yeah. do you think that book is going to be finished? Do you have any thoughts? So about it, 
Yeah, it's supposed to come out this fall. So it's oh. supposed to come out in September. So oh. yeah, I'm writing away and really enjoying it. I'm very much immersed in the research around World War II and just amazed at the women of the French resistance and so enamored of Winston Churchill. <laughs> so, and some of the British spies like Nora Naya Khan, she was put to death at Dachau. So yeah, I'm, I'm really in the middle of it down the rabbit hole. I love stories about World War II in Europe and women who've, you know, like God to Soldiers by Marge Piercy. Did you ever read that book? No, yeah. I haven't. What's the name of it? It's called God to Soldiers and it's by Marge Piercy, who's a, you know, fairly famous feminist author. And what I loved about that book, it's kind of similar to yours in a way that it's all these different interconnected stories uh-huh. of women all over the world, not just in Europe, but all over the world through World War II. Wow. Oh, that's a fascinating. I'll have to read that. Yes, it's really good. And one of my favorite novels is about two women in Europe, and one of them is in the French Resistance. Uh, and it's wonderful. It's called Codename Verity. Oh, okay. I haven't read and, that one. Thank yeah. You. And I read it for my book group and I loved it. I have to go back and reread <laughs> it. It's rare that I reread things because I read so much, but it's really worthwhile. And yeah, Codename Verity. You would enjoy that because of all the spy stuff. Yeah. And there's, I kind, of a, and there's kind of a twist in the book. And yeah, it's really excellent. So speaking of that, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on things that you've read or watched? recently that have inspired you? Well, like I said, I've been down the rabbit hole with World War II, but I absolutely loved All the Light We Cannot See. I think it got... Oh, yes. I like that book too. Yeah. Yeah, that was gorgeous. And then I've just been reading a biography about Winston Churchill. And so just really fascinated with his story. One thing that I love about his story is just the way that he didn't do well in school. You know, he kept getting kicked out and failing all of his subjects and But then he went into the military and that was actually a really great outlet for him and started him on his path and then just became this incredible, tenacious leader during World War II. That's interesting you say that because just last night I was watching Call the Midwife on Netflix and Winston Churchill died, you know, at the age of 90, whatever it was. So, so I just watched The Dig last night too. Have you oh, seen Oh, I think I've heard about that. What yeah. is that about? It's set in England right on the outbreak of World War II, which was why I wanted to watch it. It's just the same time period that I'm writing about. It's really good for language and, and details. Oh, yeah. Basically, this woman who has mounds on her property, you know, like uh, archaeological mounds, and she brings in this man to help her excavate them. And it ends up being this fifth century boat with with like a burial chamber. And the spoils that they found, like the beautiful treasures that they found are still in the British Museum. They're still one of the most important archaeological finds of all time from that time. (laughs) So it's really remarkable. Wow. That sounds like a good one. Is that on Netflix or Hulu or something? It was on Netflix, yeah. Netflix, okay, I'll look for it. My final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Well, the great thing is people are always sending them to me too. Yes, I bet. <laughs> I bet. But I think if I go back to my childhood, the really influential stories were those ones of my family. And, you know, they were pioneer stories. They were mostly about sacrifice and choosing to leave your land and go to another and 
for religious freedom many times, but one of the ones that I've always found personally most inspiring is this woman named uh, Maria Susanna Merrick Madison Mabin Thorne. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so a long name. She was born at Windsor Castle, actually. Her father was the purveyor of vegetables for the family. <laughs> she, she ended up marrying into gentry. And anyway, her baby died, and she was really just distraught over the loss of that baby. And the Church of England, the leader in the Church of England, told her the baby was going to help because it died before it was baptized. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and I think that grief motivated her to listen to the Mormon missionaries who told her that their doctrine is a little bit kinder in terms of babies who die. So she chose to leave all of that. Like her husband basically told her, I mean, at that time you would lose your land claim if you left the Church of England. So he basically told her like, you can choose that religion or you can choose this, you know? And she, so she chose to leave and became a pioneer and crossed the ocean and then the plains and settled in the first year in the valley settled in a repurposed chicken coop. And so just the idea of going from the beginning of her life in Windsor Castle to that chicken coop on the frontier. <laughs> Remarkable. I actually have a teacup that belonged to her. So I love the contradictions <laughs> really? of her life. Yeah, I do. A teacup. My great-grandmother gave it to oh me. Oh my gosh. Did your great-grandmother have a connection to this person? Yeah, yeah. It was her grandmother. Yeah. Oh, it was her grandmother. Oh, I missed yeah. that. I'm sorry. Wow. No, no. That's amazing. Wow. Maybe that's another good topic for you to write about. There were a lot of independent women in my family. Sounds like it. (laughs) Including hers. I think that almost everybody in their family has remarkable stories of tenacity and grit. You know, that's something that is fairly well known about the LDS Church is the great love of ancestry and researching genealogy. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother is really into genealogy and so that's really a benefit of, of the LDS Church, I think. Yeah, I think as a historical writer, to me, like the previous generations feel very present to me. Interesting. And I think that as I've interviewed a number of Black people and other people of color, I feel like ancestry is so strong for them, maybe Mm -hmm. more so than a lot of typical white people really. Yeah. That's really interesting. And as I get older, I, I become more interested in that as well. Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting synchronicity with the cultures where our families came from, you know, like mm-hmm. prior to wherever they came from. So unless we're native and we are in America, like our families came from somewhere else. And yes. as I've traveled back to those places like Wales, for instance, I'm surprised at the resonance that I feel with those cultures, you know? Right. So. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting now that we can have our DNA analyzed. And my 24-year-old son recently had his ancestry, his his DNA done. And he informed us that he has like 2% Ashkenazi Jew. Wow. And so it's interesting because I think it comes from my husband's family. And my mother-in-law is uh, 100% Russian. And she suspects, she's wondered out loud, like, I wonder if we have any Jewish. Well, now yeah. I think that's where it came from. So yeah. it's fascinating stuff. 
Yeah. And actually with this World War II research, I have learned that I have to use totally different research tools when I'm researching European Jews, because many of those records and many of that history was intentionally destroyed yes. or covered up, you know, because of that prejudice and the and the great danger that they it represented. So that's been interesting. I've had to expand my research approaches. Um, and I, I imagine that during the war, I mean, do they have records of who died? In the camp? A lot of Jewish organizations have very intentionally set about reclaiming those records. Uh-huh. And so you usually have to go through them. But if you go through the traditional ways that you would research in Europe, like for, with parish records, those kinds of things, those records have been destroyed and many mm-hmm. times intentionally. And so mm-hmm. what you're saying about your family w- would totally make sense because there were many families who chose to change their names and obscure their Jewish roots as a means of protection. Well, this has just been a wonderful conversation, Marianne. I'm so yeah. glad to meet you. And when you come to Portland, remember to let me know so I can take you to Abigail Scott Dunaway's grave. I would love that. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's wear pants. <laughs> yes, we'll wear pants. We'll wear our, what is the term? The reform dressing? That's right. We'll wear our reform dresses. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much for your time, Marianne. Thank Great you. To meet it was you. a pleasure. Great okay. to meet you. Thanks for Bye. your work. I really enjoyed my meeting with Marianne and learning about more gritty, resilient women in history. Don't forget, you can find photos of Marianne, links to purchase her books, and other details on my website, www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the podcast tab. Do you know someone with a grit and resilient story who would be great to interview? You can find more info on the website. Next week, I interview Cindy Van Arnhem, who has faced a lifetime of mountains, starting when her beloved dad passed away when she was 16 years old. For 23 years, she created a mountain in every choice she made about her life, from cocaine addiction and abusive relationships to traveling to foreign countries without a plan. She was always seeking a way to make life hard for herself. She finally understood that she was a mountain that didn't need to be there. Now she helps entrepreneurs fully discover their own limitless power so they can create sustainable wealth through self-mastery. Thanks for listening to the Finding From the Ground podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.